0: Hello all and a warm welcome from the cold corner of North Wales where each week one man is Mike and his spare room brings you the obscure and long forgotten tales of crimes and criminals that are dug out from the annals of the UK and Ireland's criminal history. And I'm that guy, Paul, the producer, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title and as ever it's fantastic to have you guys join me here for another episode, one I trust finds you all well and good. I bet you're cold though, because it's proper Baltic outside, isn't it? And maybe optional snow as well. Although it wasn't half bad here as elsewhere that I've seen in the country. Perhaps we're bound for some more, who knows? I hope so, I really do, because I kind of love the chaos that snow brings with it here. I like seeing people go out panic buying and the mile-long trips in a car that take three hours, that kind of thing, you know. The UK is absolutely piss poor at dealing with stuff like that. Whereas you guys in other places who get real snow, hats off to you because you've got it covered. Thanks very much this week to both returning and new Patreon supporters of the show. That's Jessica Gore and Ken Rooney. Cheers for that guys, it's most kind of you. And I hope that you enjoy the bonus episodes that are available for supporters. Episode 13 went up a week ago and it's a right tale. The Portsmouth Casanova Murder. In the words of highbrow television historian, apparently now Danny Dyer, it's proper nobby. Very loose term that highbrow. You two can be supporters. That's you guys, not the Edge, the other two, and that bell end with the permanent shades on. For a reasonable amount each month, as much as you used to get sellotaped inside a birthday card from a mate when you were younger. Details with the show notes, or they can be found by seeking out the True Crime Enthusiast podcast on the Patreon site. Look for the hand sliding down the window. Robert's your mother's brother. And this episode finds me back hosting promos for some other shows, which if you hang on after the end credits of the episode, you'll get to hear. The promos this week are from Based on a True Crime podcast hosted by Chelsea and David and Whispered True Stories that's hosted by Kit Caron. a couple of stateside podcasts that you guys may find to you liking. Thanks very much to the hosts for their promos and be sure to tune in at the end of the episode to see if you like what you hear. So for the past couple of episodes on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, we focused on the State Hospital in Scotland, more commonly known as Carstairs. Tales of a few of its previous patients and its most infamous episode, the 1976 Escape, have already been told in the Scottish Chain of Ten two-part episode in past weeks on the show. And to round off this season's Carstairs trilogy, this episode will meet some more of its past patients. Over the course of its history, Carstairs has incarcerated people who are responsible for some of the most horrific, frightening crimes that Scotland and Northern Ireland have ever seen. And to list each individual's patients' crimes would be an impossible task to research and record. So I've decided for this episode, just to concentrate on a select pair that I think will highlight just some of the horrors that Carstairs has housed over the years. As ever on the show, this episode contains descriptions of events and crimes involving children that some listeners may find disturbing or upsetting, so as always, discretion is advised whilst listening. With that in mind, please join the true crime enthusiast for the final part of our Carstairs trilogy, Other Patients. Although it's today only a facility that houses male patients, for many years Carstairs housed female patients as well as male, a practice that continued up until only a few years ago. It's a female, and it's to the Outlands area of Glasgow in March 1961 that's the focus of our first tale. It was around half past five on the evening of Monday the 27th of March 1961 that ambulance driver Jack Kirkland responded to a report of a child having fallen from a third floor window of a property at number 39 Tory Glen Street in Glasgow. Accidents such as this, although very tragic, they weren't altogether uncommon back at the time due to the old-fashioned style windows in flats and houses of the era kids would fall out. The area today contains industrial units but back in 1961 it was a densely populated street containing flats and housing but upon approaching the property even before the ambulance had arrived at the scene that day reports came over the radio that made it horrifically apparent that this wasn't an accident and it didn't just involve one child it involved several. The emergency services responded to an overload of frantic calls from the shocked public, horrified at what they'd witnessed. Jack Kirkland later recalled, As we turned into Tory Glen Street, we were confronted by an absolute nightmare. There was frantic activity, there were police cars everywhere, policemen were trying to clear a path for us through the shocked and horrified groups of people, women in headscarves and aprons were holding each other and crying uncontrollably. Now the sight that met them was one that even today still conjures up images of absolute horror. There were five crumpled and broken bodies lying on the pavement, the bodies of young children, the oldest being just seven years old. One of the bodies, later identified to be that four-year-old Marjorie Hughes, was covered with a blanket, an act of mercy for the child's dignity, who died on impact following the fall. Miraculously, and this is pretty incredible really, the four other children were all still alive, although with various terrible injuries. A resident of Tory Glen Street, James Haming, recalled hearing the sickening sounds of two of the children landing on the pavement, and rushed out in response. He said later, I looked out and saw two kiddies lying there. When I rushed out I saw another child falling from the window. I half caught him on my shoulder before he fell to the ground but before I could do anything else, I looked up and saw two more kiddies on the way down. I felt so helpless, there was nothing that I could do. Bloody hellfire, can you imagine seeing that? There's just no words really to describe that, is there? It must have been absolutely horrific. Whilst the shocked and sickened ambulance staff tended to the four injured but still alive children, Police had by that time arrested the occupants of the flat on the third floor. A neighbour seeing the children lying on the pavement had raced upstairs and burst through the bolted flat door for a terrified small boy to rush past him frightened out of his wits and screaming for his mother. As police arrived the occupant of the top floor flat a 37 year old woman named Jean Barclay Waddell offered no resistance to them was immediately arrested on suspicion of murder and attempted murder from the tale that was pieced together by the account of the child who had rushed out of the flat the one who fortunately had escaped the carnage unharmed but was to suffer badly and unsurprisingly from shock the story told was one of an incomprehensible act the six children all of whom lived further along tory glen street from number 39 had been approached in the street when they were all playing together, and invited up to the third floor flat by Gene Waddell, who lived alone up there, and who had lured all six up there on the pretense of seeing a newborn litter of puppies. I mean, what bunch of kids is going to refuse to see that? That's an offer they can't refuse, isn't it? Once all were inside, however, the door to the flat was bolted and secured. Gene Waddell calmly opened the flat window, and one by one began to throw the children from the third floor. once the children realized the reality of what was happening, you can't imagine the terror that they must have gone through, and they desperately tried to escape. It was futile though, because out of the six children in that flat, five of them were thrown out of the window by Jean Waddell, three floors down to the concrete pavement outside, sixty feet. The four surviving but injured children, seven-year-old Francis Lennon and his five-year-old sister Margaret, and their friends Thomas Downey Devaney, aged four, and five-year-old Daniel mcneil were all rushed to hospital where their grave injuries were treated and each was made comfortable. Daniel was the most seriously injured of the four, requiring emergency brain surgery to save his life after being rushed to Killeen Hospital in Stirlingshire. The other three children were all soon in a serious but comfortable condition at Glasgow's Victoria Hospital and all four slowly began to recover from their life-threatening injuries in the weeks and months that followed. Jean Barclay Waddell appeared at Glasgow Sheriff's Court the following day, Tuesday the 28th of March 1961, charged with the murder of Marjorie Hughes and the attempted murder of the other four children. During the two-minute hearing where no plea or declaration was made, Waddell was said to have bitten her lips somewhat, but otherwise seemed quite composed. She was remanded in custody for psychiatric evaluation. So what on earth drives a person to commit such absolute horror against children? Less than two months after the horror, on the 8th of May 1961, the High Court in Glasgow was to hear the full horrific story. The life of Jean Barclay Waddell had been a sad one for many years, right up to that point, a life blighted by a substantial history of mental illness. Yet it hadn't always been this way. At one time, Jean had been a happy woman and had been employed in occupations such as hotel receptionist and shorthand typist. She'd even been married as a young woman following the Second World War to a Canadian soldier named Floyd Oakman that she'd met in 1945, and following the marriage, he and Jean went to live back in his native Canada, settling in Saskatchewan. Don't know if I'm saying that properly. The marriage broke down after about eighteen months and the couple were divorced and It was perhaps this event that was to be a trigger of sorts for it was following a divorce that Jean began developing signs of mental illness before returning to live in Scotland in the mid nineteen fifties. Jean spent time as a patient at a number of hospitals and sanitariums in Canada. And upon returning back to live in her native country, had a complete breakdown and was taken to a Glasgow Sanitarium for treatment for tuberculosis, whilst here she severely assaulted a nurse and was admitted to a mental hospital where her mental state worsened, not improved. Jean had constant severe sexual delusions that she was about to give birth to an illegitimate child and lived in an almost constant fantasy that police monitored her every movement, having amorous intentions towards her. She was moved for a long period of time to the former Hawkhead Hospital in Glasgow for treatment, but if anything, the constant paranoia and psychosexual delusions continued and worsened, and further to this, Jean now began to believe that she was the Empress of Japan. The psychiatric response decided upon to alleviate these symptoms, The best course of treatment decided for her, and a used treatment in the loosest possible term, as I said in a previous episode, was to subject her to electric shock treatment that did nothing except have a devastating effect upon Jean. It left her with a morbid fear of places where at one time, even if she didn't want to be there, she was always treated kindly and felt safe. When she was finally released from here in January 1961, Jean was left so afraid of ever returning and facing such treatment again that she thought that she'd rather be dead following her release Jean found lodgings on the third floor of a tenement block at number 37 Tory Glen Street in Glasgow but her mental issues remained and she became more and more convinced that death was the only way out for her less than two months after being discharged from hospital Jean made an attempt to buy a gun but had second thoughts about doing so, and opted to attempt suicide a different way instead, taking an overdose of more than 100 aspirin. She was found in time after this attempt, and rushed to hospital for an emergency stomach pump, following which she was admitted to the psychiatric unit in Glasgow's Duke Street. Yet she was discharged again from here after only a short stay of a few days, by falsely telling nursing staff that she felt better. Dr. Hunter Gillies, consultant psychiatrist at Glasgow's Stobhill Hospital, told Glasgow High Court on Monday the 8th of May 1961 that when Jean had been released from hospital a few days before the end of March 1961, following the suicide attempt, she'd found herself constantly wandering the streets of the city. It was whilst walking down Glasgow's Union Street that she suddenly formed the plan that, if she could not successfully commit suicide herself, then the way to escape from her wretched life was to commit such a heinous act, something truly terrible, that meant she would surely face the hangman, and the responsibility for her death would be taken out of her hands. And then on the way home, close to her flat, she saw a group of children playing, and the rest is the stuff of nightmares. Dr Hunter Gillies told the court, On the way home she saw a little boy and girl and invited them up to her house. She collected more children and eventually had six in the flat. She told me it was her intention to throw all of them out of the window and that she threw five of them out. She said she would rather be hanged than go back to Hawkhead. Hunter Gillies further told the court It was remarkable that she seemed more interested in her appeal to men than she did in her predicament as an accused person. At no time did she express any sorrow for her actions, which she described to me in detail regardless of the damaging nature of her admissions. She is a chronic case of paranoid schizophrenia from which she's been suffering, sometimes overtly and sometimes inconspicuously, since 1947. Following an adjournment to legal proceedings, on the 28th of May 1961, Jean Waddell was found unfit to plead, and the judge, Lord Strachan, had no alternative but to send her to Carstairs. No one was questioning or appealing this decision, and following her incarceration, Jean Waddell surprisingly faded into obscurity for someone responsible for such a horrific crime. She was to spend many years in Carstairs for her horrific actions before being released into a less secure facility leading to her ultimate release in the late 1980s. She spent the rest of her life in anonymity, before she was reported passing away in a Dumfrieshire nursing home in 2009, aged 86. Few people there could ever suspect that the gentle-looking elderly lady was responsible for such horror. Shocking enough to begin the episode with that tale? it does get grimmer with our next tale. It was the second Sunday of 1961, two months before Jean Waddell committed a horrific crime and nearly 150 miles away in the Scottish city of Aberdeen. Aberdeen is Scotland's third most populous city. It's on the northeast coast of the country and it's a city that hails notable people such as John Snow's wild in love, Rose Leslie, Eurythmics' Annie Lennox and Manchester United legend Dennis Law. It's also a place that I occasionally have to visit for work and the drive is an absolute nightmare. It's an unbelievably hell of a long way for me to go. That evening, as the church bells in the woodside area of the city rang out calling evening worshippers to services, a little girl lay dying in a gutter nearby, her neck torn to shreds by a horrific knife wound. The girl was June Cruikshank, a sweet-faced six-year-old, who'd left her home in the top floor flat of a tenement at number no. 7 Printfield Walk only a short time before, sent on an errand by her mother. Her destination and mission was to buy a packet of custard powder from a shop at the corner of Great Northern Road and Peary's Lane in Aberdeen, known in the locality as Kincaid's. Kincaid's was just a very short walk from the council tenement where June and her family lived, just a hundred and thirty five yards in total, and June was a familiar figure and was well liked by the staff there, often popping in to buy sweets or running errands for her mother. Messages, as the local dialect calls them. On that evening, Sunday the eighth of january, nineteen sixty one, June had been dressed in his Sunday best clothes, a royal blue cardigan, straw coloured pullover and navy blue skirt, ankle socks in the navy blue and gold colours of Gordon's College, And brown lace up shoes, whilst her short fair hair was loosely fastened up in a light blue ribbon. June had been at home with her siblings watching television that late afternoon when her mother, preparing the family's evening meal before husband David came home from working as a taxi driver, realised that she was short of custard powder. I know it's sadly unimaginable today to even consider sending such a small child on any kind of errand unsupervised, regardless of distance but the fears we have for children today weren't acknowledged or perhaps realised back then. I know it sounds cliched, but it really did seem a different time completely. Anne Cruikshank would not for a second have considered anything amiss when she handed June a sixpence from her purse and sent her on a short errand to Kincaid's to buy the groceries that she needed. And June happily went. She'd done it many times before and would be back before the programme she was watching finished. It was about 5.50pm when the small girl skipped down the stairs and headed out into Printfield Walk to the shop a short distance away. Shortly after 6pm, Anne Cruikshank found that she was short of something else that she needed to prepare dinner and so she sent June's brother, 12-year-old Brian, to Kincaid's to fetch the item remarking to him that June was taking rather a long time and if he saw her to basically tell her to get herself home sure we've all been told off like that haven't we a short time later the daughter number seven printfield walk went but it was brian who'd returned with the item there was no sign of june although the staff at Kincaid's told him that she'd left there a short while before and he'd seen nothing of her on his own journey home almost at the same time he'd returned home only a short distance away His sister had somehow found the strength to cross the main road, momentarily deserted of traffic, but ultimately to collapse from her horrific wounds in a pool of blood, almost in sight of her home. When June had left the shop some minutes before, it must have been just before 6pm on that dark January evening, somewhere on that short journey home, she met a killer who lured her into a dark, creepy looking lane nearby a cul-de-sac on the northeastern side of the Great Northern Road. He then cut the little girl's throat. A churchgoer on the way to choir practice at St Mary's Cathedral, 26-year-old Maureen Higgins, was heading to a bus stop just after 6pm when she saw a crumpled heap lying at the side of the road near to the Printfield bus terminus that she used. Maureen at first thought that it was a dog that had been injured as the bundle appeared to be crawling, but when she drew closer, the glow of the streetlights exposed the full horror of what it actually was. The bundle was a small child, what appeared to be a little girl, whose clothing was saturated with blood. Also catching a bus at that time was shipyard worker Robert Munro, who'd been visiting his mother in Printfield Walk that afternoon and was now heading to catch a bus into town to visit his wife in a maternity home where the expectant mother was due to give birth to their first child. Hearing Maureen's screams, he rushed over to see what he could do, but there was little either he or Maureen could do for June, her injuries were that grave. Whilst Maureen covered the small child with her coat, Robert flagged down a passing motorist and requested that he fetch police and an ambulance. It was just at that moment when Mrs Cruickshank was looking out of the window to see if there was any sign of her daughter on her way back from her errand. She must have seen the obvious commotion just along the street and perhaps with some sort of sixth sense, Robert shouted up to ask her if she was looking for a little girl. When she agreed that she was, he told her, there's a little girl down here. A distressed and frantic Anne Cruickshank shot down the stairs and was momentarily at her daughter's side trying to comfort her and awaiting the ambulance arriving one had been called and was on its way but sadly june was beyond help although she was rushed to hospital she was pronounced dead on arrival at first Anne Cruikshank thought that her daughter had been the victim of a road accident an understandable supposition due to where she was laying and does anyone immediately wish to jump to the conclusion that the child has come to deliberate harm It wasn't until long after June's father David, a taxi driver who'd been working but was summoned to police headquarters following the horrific discovery until he returned home, that Anne was to hear the horrific and tragic way that her daughter had actually died. The post-mortem was to reveal that June's throat had been slashed from the front by a very powerful single swipe from a very sharp bladed instrument but there was no sign of sexual assault or interference. Every available police officer and detective turned out in force as Aberdeen's biggest murder hunt for several years began under the guidance and direction of Detective Chief Inspector Donald McIntosh, the head of Aberdeen CID. The champion police tracker dog, a German shepherd named Rennie, was brought in to search the area, and the trail of blood was soon traced back from where June's body was found to the spot at the cul-de-sac where a killer had initially struck, a small area of waste ground between some petrol pumps and a garage, where a pool of blood was discovered. This was across the Great Northern Road from where June lived, and from Kincaid's shop, so why had June been there? Had a killer lured her there somehow? The area was cordoned off, and a detachment of firemen turned spotlights onto the scene, where a fingertip search was undertaken. Meanwhile the spot where June's body had lain was photographed and protected from contamination by using planks and a wooden door and a pop-up field headquarters was established in the Corporation Cleaning Building that was at the time located next to Printfield Walk. That evening at 10pm a press conference was convened at Aberdeen's Lodge Walk Police Headquarters chaired by Chief Constable Alexander Matheson who told reporters we are anxious to find anyone who may have seen a man or a youth with blood-stained clothing in the vicinity of Printfield Walk or the fountain area of Woodside. The fountain area was colloquially known as such due to the drinking well that once stood at the road junction nearby. I'm sure that we all know places such as this that are still recognized as such from things that were in its place many years before. I mean. There's a place quite near where I'm from that's called Bell's Corner because about a 100 years ago, there was a shop ran by someone called Bell and it's still known as Bell's Corner today. Pop trivia quiz for you. The day after the murder, news of the shocking crime had gotten around and caused real terror amongst the community. School children, including those who attended Woodside Primary School where June herself had been a pupil, were allowed out of the school gates early so that they could get home before the hours of darkness descended, on the condition that they travelled in pairs or groups. That was if they weren't collected at the gates by their worried mothers, with a collective feeling of protection that always occurs in a community following a horrific child killing descending. The feeling was perhaps summed up by the words of one mother, who was quoted by the Aberdeen Press and Journal as saying, I'll do my own messages from now on there was a real grip of fear in the area and rightly so i mean what kind of monster comes out of the darkness and cuts the throat of a six-year-old child that would put the frighteners on anybody wouldn't it the murder investigation undertook house-to-house inquiries the full length of printfield walk and the great northern road from one end to the other and the congregations of saint joseph's roman catholic church the salvation army mission the Fountain Mission and the Woodside South Church were all spoken to as they would have been in the area around the time of the murder on their way to worship perhaps they'd seen someone or heard something all known local sex offenders and persons with history of violence in the Woodside area were also focused upon and interviewed and one by one were ruled out of the inquiry children from all local schools Woodside Old Aberdeen Powys Tilly Drone Primary and Tilly Drone were also all spoken to following the crime and they were asked three main questions had they seen anyone on the Sunday evening with blood-stained clothing or hands had they seen any incident which could be connected with the crime in the few weeks before June's death had a stranger offered any of them any money in exchange for going off with the person Now, the significance of this last question would prove to be crucial but much later down the line. All of these questions and interviews drew a blank, and police were left with their only clue, which had been handed to them on the morning following the crime. A telephone directory had been found in a phone booth outside the Northern Hotel at the very start of Great Northern Road. Not unusual, you may think, in a phone box. But this directory was covered in sticky red fingerprints, and it wasn't from paint either. It seemed likely that June's killer had stopped to wipe the blood from his hands there after slashing her throat. Press conferences were held daily during the hunt for June's killer and despite all police leave being cancelled and teams working around the clock to catch the person responsible the investigation was difficult from the start. Nobody had seen or heard anything from June leaving the shop until she was discovered close to death a short distance away. On the Monday following the murder Chief Constable Matheson admitted to a packed press audience We are really up against it We don't appear to be getting the breaks at all We are just in the dark And if he sounded disappointed and frustrated Then it was perfectly warranted No one had come forward to say that they'd found any bloodstained clothing or a weapon There were no witnesses to say that they'd seen anyone fleeing the scene either And no screams had been heard it appeared that nobody bar her killer had seen June from the moment she left the shop until her body was found. The telephone directory covered in blood was the only possible lead the police had and this wasn't really helpful either. It did indicate the direction that June's killer had taken following the murder and where he'd stopped nearby to clean some of the blood off his hands but that was it, there were no workable fingerprints that could be lifted from the book. The crime was described as the worst that Aberdeen had ever seen, and several major questions baffled the murder squad. There was no reason for June to have crossed the busy Great Northern Road as Kincaid's was on the same side of the street as Printfield Walk. Yet she had been attacked in the lane across the road, a footprint and a large patch of blood was found there, and she'd then recrossed the great Northern road, trying to make it home had she been chased across by a killer or lured across somehow had she been targeted or was this a random opportunistic crime and for what reason june had not been sexually assaulted and robbery was obviously not a motive here so why does anybody do that for a trail that was already cold to start with it seemed to be getting colder the search for the murder weapon it was described as post-mortem as a sharp-edged instrument believed to be a knife or a razor continued and gardens hedges drains and waste ground in the area were all scoured thoroughly by police and dog handlers metal and mine detecting equipment was also used but to no avail no murder weapon was found in the area june's parents were convinced that someone knew who the killer was or at the very least had serious suspicions and was keeping the identity secret perhaps out of fear or perhaps out of misguided loyalty David Cruikshank was so convinced of this that on behalf of his devastated family he made the following impassioned plea through the Scottish Daily Express. To whoever is sheltering my daughter's killer for God's sake please come forward and tell the police all you know before there is another terrible tragedy. Whoever did this must be sick in the mind. It was signed David K. Cruickshank. The newspaper also reported that David's boss, Robert P McIntosh, the owner of the Gallowgate based taxi company that David was a driver for, had offered a £1,000 reward for information which would lead to the arrest and conviction of June's killer. It was a very generous sum at the time and it showed the impact of the crime, the sheer revulsion and horror that it had instilled in the area and the community. Over the next few days of the inquiry, as the weather turned even more horrendous than usual, because, as people are very fond of saying, they were proper winters back then, weren't they? Even the special constabulary were called out to bolster the investigation. The murder squad had been working flat out and had not rested for a second, but there was always the great fear that June's killer could and would strike again and an enhanced visible police presence on the streets would go some way to calm the fears of protective mothers and frightened families. Meanwhile, the blinds remained pulled down at the Cruikshanks flat as David, Anne and June's siblings prepared themselves to face yet another harrowing day which took place on the fourth day of the investigation, June's funeral. Since her death, David and Anne had rarely ventured outside, instead keeping their remaining children close to them. 12-year-old twins Brian and Norma, 4-year-old Anne-Marie and 2-year-old David Jr. When they had ventured out, they'd found themselves the focus of unwanted and intrusive attention from well-meaning people, press and police, as well as the rubberneckers' gossips and just general nosy bastards that are always omnipresent through these things. June's funeral was a largely private affair, though, and it took place at Trinity Cemetery on Thursday, the 12th of January, with the lairs and footpaths of the grounds white with snow as, from a respectful distance, public and reporters watched the mourners arrive. June's tiny wreath-topped white coffin was borne on the shoulders of two mourners, with the tragic yet dignified visible figure of David Cruickshank walking closely behind. The burial itself was private and only the bereaved close family were allowed inside the cemetery gates although a press plane did circle overhead. Earlier people had lined the pavement opposite Printfield Walk and had watched as the line of four funeral cars had passed slowly within a few paces of where June's body had been found. Men doffed their caps in respect and women openly wept as the cortege had turned right onto Great Northern Road passing the entrance to the lane where june was initially attacked out of the many floral tributes one was a collective tribute that came from june's school friends whilst the family wreath contained a simple but heartfelt handwritten message with all our love mum and daddy brian norma Anne and david on the saturday following the murder DCI McIntosh made a loudspeaker appeal to the 20,000 capacity crowd at the Aberdeen Celtic fixture at Pittodrie. It didn't produce any new witnesses coming forward, but it did touch the hearts of a group of Celtic fans who before heading back to Glasgow, went and laid a floral tribute upon June's grave. Police and public were mystified by the reluctance of witnesses to come forward. By a week after the killing, Police had details of 35 possible witnesses seen in the area that had still not come forward, despite the desperate and widespread pleas for help and the appeals that police were not concerned with pursuing petty crimes that may be preventing a person coming forward. They simply wanted to catch a child killer. The one report that police did have that sounded promising, that they especially wanted to eliminate from their inquiries, was the report of a blood-stained, heavy-set man who'd been spotted on a bus bound for the town centre on the evening of the murder. The man was a passenger on a number 18 bus travelling from the direction of Smithfield in the city, and was remembered for having bloodstains on his forehead and face. He was observed getting off the bus on Castle Street at about 7pm, and had walked off in the direction of Mariscal Street, but had then changed his mind, and headed in the opposite direction, towards Market Street and the Salvation Army Citadel. However, he wasn't identified, at least not at that time. Detectives also investigated a complaint that a four-year-old girl, coincidentally also called June, had been enticed away from her home in Logie Avenue, a distance of less than two miles from Printfield. This little girl had also been sent on an errand by her mother, but was thankfully found alive and unharmed an hour later, her alleged young abductor having long fled. It was later established that there was no connection found between this and the murder, and the little girl's abductor was rapidly caught and dealt with, but it did nothing for the frayed nerve's appearance. Nor did the usual rumour mongering and false reports, such as many rumours sweeping the city of girls being attacked, and anonymous letters being sent to police and newspapers, one such example being the poorly spelt and worded missive sent to the Aberdeen Press and Journal saying, A car was used. Police should concentrate on this. Also, man had local knowledge. The type that every high-profile investigation gets. Vague, unhelpful, and basically complete bollocks. The Reverend J.R. McCulloch, Minister of the Cruikshank family from the Bon Accord Church, lashed out from the pulpit on the Sunday service following June's murder to condemn rumourmongers who'd spread such wild and hurtful lies. And in the midst of all of this suspicion, all of this fear and innuendo, plainclothes and uniformed police officers got on with the investigation, old-fashioned slogging and plodding, as was described by the Chief Constable. A reconstruction of June's final journey was made a week after her death, and reporters and public watched as a policeman's daughter of June's age, dressed similarly to how she'd been, retraced her footsteps from the Cruikshanks' home to the corner shop, and then back to where june's body was found although this again did not produce any fresh witnesses it did establish that it had taken june longer to have covered the distance than was first thought it was now thought that the minutes of her life that she had left following leaving home on that simple errand were closer to 15 rather than the 10 it was up to that time thought There was a flurry of excitement not long after this when two Aberdeen detectives flew down to London to question a suspect, a night porter who until very recently had lived in the Aberdeen area. He was held overnight at Paddington Police Station but was ultimately cleared and eliminated as a suspect. The man's name or how he came into the frame as a person of interest in the investigation has never been revealed. Meanwhile in a first of its kind effort to get witnesses to come forward Chief Constable Matheson travelled to the BBC Scotland studios in Glasgow to record a television interview. Mr Matheson admitted to interviewing Norman Thompson that his force was making little progress in the investigation despite a substantial team working flat out to find the killer. He pleaded once again for witnesses to come forward and calmed any fears that potential witnesses may have had about coming forward to speak to the police saying that if a reluctant witness was to come forward to him personally, giving their name and address, then he would send an officer around to take their statement personally. But again, this only met with a lukewarm response. It prompted just a handful of people to come forward, and questions began to be asked. What was the matter with people? Why wouldn't they come forward? Urgent, impassioned letters began to appear in the Aberdeen press, demanding that people come forward, if they could help solve what was considered. The most depraved of all crimes, child murder, because by not doing so, they were no better than accessories. That's a bit of a jump there, I know, but surely for such a horrific crime, if you could help in any way, then you would, wouldn't you? Surely some things take precedence. I shake my head at people who don't come forward for things like that. I can understand that people may have stuff to hide or a dislike or distrust of police, but a six year old child's murder. At a different level, I'm sorry, there shouldn't be anything that you wouldn't do to help take such a monster off the streets. During the months of the intensive murder hunt, police interviewed between 10,000 and 15,000 people and made inquiries into many more. Two walls of the CID office in police headquarters were stacked floor to ceiling with paperwork from the inquiry. And out of all that, out of all the many statements and actions that had been undertaken, out of all the exhibits that had been logged as potential evidence, there was one vital clue that would ultimately prove crucial in bringing June's killer to justice. It may not have even been realised at the time just how significant it was, and it was never publicly revealed as a clue. It was a shiny one-shilling piece. The clue had turned up when June's distraught mother Anne had hurried to her dying daughter's side. A passerby who'd stopped to give assistance had spotted the custard powder that June had still clung to, the halfpenny change that she'd dropped when she fell, and a gleam of silver, a one shilling piece lying beside the dying girl. During the moments that she was at the scene, the passerby came to understand that June had been on an errand. She'd collected and handed the coin to Mrs. Cruikshank along with the other items, Assuming that it was part of the change June had been given and had dropped. But this wasn't the case. Anne Cruikshank had handed June just a sixpence to pay for her groceries from her errand, and staff had handed June a halfpenny change. That was the only money that June had on her. The shilling coin had been given to June by her killer, a killer who, before he was caught, would go on to kill again. Two and a half years passed and eventually the hunt for the killer of June Cruikshank had long been scaled down. These things are never closed but manpower will eventually be needed elsewhere as well because crime doesn't wait around does it? And in the absence of any further information these cases sadly remain stuck in a bit of limbo don't they? We've heard this many times on the show. June was perhaps a fading memory by no means in the minds of his still grieving and broken family, or those in the immediate vicinity of where she lived, but to others, the bogeyman had gone back into the dark, and children had long before began to creep out to play once again, as life returned somewhat to normal. Seven-year-old Aberdeen schoolboy George Forbes was one such child, and young George loved pigeons, the youngest of the four Forbes children. George could forever be found exploring the derelict properties and dockside sheds near where he lived, searching for birds to befriend and feed the evening of Sunday, the seventh of July nineteen sixty three would be one such day for him. It was a warm summer evening, and at seven p m the pale, dark-haired boy left the family home at number forty six Justice Street, undoubtedly taking advantage of the light nights and going searching for pigeons. Both of George's parents were deaf and so in sign language George told his mother Mary Cheerio, I won't be long with that 7 year old George dressed in black shoes, khaki shorts grey shirt and blue flecked v-neck pullover ran downstairs and out happily into the street. That was the last time George's parents were ever to see him alive. When George didn't return home soon as promised and as one by one his siblings filtered back home with each of them not bringing George with them or reporting having seen him he was soon reported missing to police. Perhaps with echoes of what had happened to little June Cruikshank two years before rattling around the minds of police the report was taken seriously from the start and a full-scale hunt for George was immediately launched. Concentrated on a one-mile radius from his tenement's home on the corner of Justice and Commerce Streets, this incorporated the sizeable Regent and Commercial Key Dockside area that led onto the North Sea as well. And because many of the premises in the Dockland area were closed for the holidays, the keyholders were contacted and requested to attend to come and unlock their properties to allow police to carry out checks, thinking it's possible that the boy may have fallen whilst climbing and was lying injured somewhere. Rennie the search dog was also back out once again, and a counterpart of his, Colonel, also joined the search for the missing boy, concentrating on the beach and the broad hill areas of Aberdeen. Whilst this area was covered, a large search party searched the rest of the radius, comprised of police officers and the general public, and including George's father John, and his brothers and sister, Billy, Helen and Kenneth. Police rapidly had details of two reported sightings of George, one that gave them more consternation than the other. A boy matching his description had been spotted in nearby Park Street, less than an hour after he'd left home that evening. The boy was in the company of two other boys, of a similar age to him, and the witness remembered that each boy had sweets or lollipops with them. It was the second sighting, however, that gave police more cause for concern. A woman who knew George saw him messing about on rocks at the North Pier entrance to the harbour that evening, and this sighting was also corroborated by another witness. Police now feared that George may have met with an accident and had drowned, and so a search of the harbour area was made. Police frogmen searched the area thoroughly, but there was no sign of George. He wasn't found that evening, or the next day, or the day after that, and before long the days turned into weeks. And then months. The investigation was undertaken much in the same vein as the hunt for June's killer had been, and no stone was left unturned. But no one had seen George after he was seen playing on the rocks, there were no witnesses that came forward saying they'd seen George being abducted or in the company of a stranger, and there was simply no sign of the missing seven year old. Not for four long months. On Saturday the 16th of November 1963 as workers from the city's industrial areas headed home for lunch police acting on certain information as it was put to press later arrived at the site of a ramshackle greenhouse on an allotment in the Castle Hill area of Aberdeen. A shantily put together structure with a lean-to entrance. It was built onto a steep slope on Heading Hill a locality linked to Castle Hill by a wrought iron bridge that spanned the busy Commerce Street, very near to the Forbes household, and the former site where in the years 1596-97, to 97, public hangman John Justice had executed no less than 23 witches and one warlock for witchcraft. So many years later, the site was about to reveal more horror. As plainclothes police officers dressed in wellingtons and blue and green overalls and carrying spades began digging up the earthen floor of the greenhouse, a handful of passers-by gathered to watch the proceedings from the other side of the seven-foot-high barbed wire fence that bordered the allotments. Searching for stolen property was what they were told, but this was soon thought unlikely and murmurings ran through the gathered crowd when Detective Inspector Harry Halcrow of Aberdeen CID arrived first, followed shortly by the new Aberdeen Chief Constable William Smith who taken the role in March 1963 following the sudden death of Mr Matheson aged just 58. Shortly after this the Crown's appointed prosecutor Procurator Fiscal Mr Andrew S McNichol also arrived this was obviously a bit more than a dig for stolen property. During the excavations, the fire service also arrived and firemen were told to stand by in case police became overcome by sewage gases during their dig. The fading afternoon light was constantly being lit up with the flashbulbs from press photographers taking pictures of the scene, attempting to get a decent shot of the greenhouse interior, police working away at the scene, the chief constable being there and then the hearse that pulled up, which was replaced quickly by a plain blue van. After about four hours, perspiring dirt streaked detectives emerged from the grim scene and headed over to the waiting blue van, now carrying a bundle that was covered with a black plastic tarpaulin. Once it was placed in the back, the van sped off. Its destination was the public mortuary at Lodge Walk. As it sped there, the procurator fiscal Andrew McNichol came out and issued a short statement to the now assembled press saying, all i can say at the moment is that acting on certain information police officers went to this particular site they have uncovered remains which at first hand appear to be the body of a young boy i can say no more until a post-mortem has been carried out that post-mortem was held the following day which showed that the remains found were that of a young boy who'd been killed as the result of a deeply slashed throat and shortly afterwards the parents of the still missing George Forbes called at police headquarters to identify the clothes that George had been wearing when he vanished. There was no doubt who the police had found and there was also an added ordeal for the Forbes family because the kitchen window of their third floor flat actually overlooked the spot where their son's body had lain for all of those months. All the time wondering where their son was and what had happened to him He lay in a shallow grave just a hundred yards from his home, at a spot within sight to them. Imagine finding that out, how much would that haunt a person? Following the post mortem, after confirming that the remains found in the greenhouse were indeed those of the missing George Forbes, Mr. McNichol told a press conference that a man would appear in court the following day in connection with the death. On Monday, the 18th of November, the man appeared before Sheriff Aikman Smith where he was formally charged with three offences of indecency and one of assault, all involving young children. He was also formally charged with the murder of George Forbes and the cold case murder of six-year-old June Cruikshank two and a half years before, before being remanded pending further inquiries. The man was 39-year-old labourer, James John Oliphant oliphant a heavy-set ruddy-faced man had been escorted before the sheriff by officers detective chief inspector Halcrow, detective inspector tom cobb and detective sergeant bill adams the former of which went immediately following oliphant's arraignment to the workplace of ann Cruikshank, informing her of an arrest in the hunt for her daughter's killer when he next appeared in the dock at a sheriff court pleading debt in Aberdeen on Monday the 3rd of February 1964, Oliphant, the and powerfully built labourer known as Big Jim to his workmates, sat quietly with downcast eyes, his hands clasped tightly in front of him. Asked by Sheriff Archibald Hamilton how he intended to plead to the six charges against him, including both culpable homicides of June Cruikshank and George Forbes, Ruddy faced Oliphant replied simply, Guilty, sir. Oliphant displayed no emotion or spoke again during the 30 minute hearing, his eyes only flickering once when Mr. McNichol, the fiscal, told the court that the accused had killed both children simply because they screamed. The prosecution tale began back on the evening of 8th January 1961, when June's mother had sent her to Kincaid's shop to get the custard powder. Given her sixpence to do so. A short time later, June was found in the street, apparently unconscious and very badly injured, causing the woman who found her to think at first that she'd been struck by a vehicle. By this time, Mrs. Cruikshank, worried about the length of time her daughter had taken on the errand and seeing the crowd gathering along the street, had rushed out when told it was to do with a little girl. A woman amongst the bystanders saw a shilling lying beside June's body and had handed it to mrs Cruikshank, assuming that her daughter had dropped it mrs Cruikshank, understandably distressed and on autopilot put the shilling into her pocket without thinking about it mr mcnichol then described the intensive police manhunt for the killer and how despite the hunt they had failed to capture him the strangest thing he told the court was that police could not trace anybody who'd seen june crossing the busy great northern road after the terrible slash to her throat had been inflicted he told the packed courtroom the police kept the file open and kept a careful watch for any further information when they went back to mrs Cruikshank, she remembered the shilling she was convinced that she'd only given june sixpence and the police it will be remembered found the halfpenny change underneath her body the existence of this shilling was known only to a handful of people and the find was not noted or made public at the time, because it might of course just been a casual shilling dropped by a passerby. The police kept it to themselves, realising though that it might prove to be a vital clue. The scene was then switched to the evening of Armistice Day in 1963, four months after the disappearance of George Forbes, where the father of a seven-year-old boy from the Castle Hill area had noticed that his son had a vicious looking red welt around his neck when asked to explain this mark the boy somewhat reluctantly told his father that he and another boy had been in a shed on an allotment in castle hill that belonged to a man they knew as jimmy jimmy had for whatever reasons placed a rope around the boy's neck looped the other end over a hook in the ceiling and had pulled attempting to hang him The father took his son to the police about this incident, and when the boy's friend was questioned about it, he confirmed that this had indeed taken place. Both boys had fled in fear following the incident, alarmed by what had happened, I mean, as you would be if someone had tried to hang you, wouldn't you? In the course of questioning the boy, as with all cases that involve suspected indecency, because the boy had told his father that they'd been given a shilling each, and what else does a stranger do that to children for? Police asked the two boys if they knew of any other children who may have visited the allotment and one of the boys mentioned the name George Forbes. With this in mind it was now time to speak to the person the allotment was registered to a labourer named James John Oliphant who lived as a tenant of a top floor loft in Market Street. Police interviewed Oliphant about the assault on the boy that he was alleged to have tried to hang which Oliphant didn't deny and when he was asked if he knew anything about the missing George Forbes, Oliphant replied, Will it make it any easier on me if I tell you? I'll take you to where that loon Forbes is. He's down at my greenhouse. He started screaming, and I cut his throat with a knife. Detectives then asked Oliphant if he knew anything about the death of June Cruikshank. to which he replied before beginning to cry, Aye, it was me i gave her a shilling and took her around the back of the petrol place later she started screaming i can i'll get hung for this i'm finished oliphant admitted that he'd caught a bus nearby Some time later after he'd wiped the blood from his hands on the pages of the telephone directory on great northern road he'd been the bloodstained man seen getting off the bus and heading in the direction of market street where he lived At the time of June's murder, Oliphant had been the foreman of a small group of workers who'd been labouring near the place where the girl's body was found. The reason he wasn't suspected at the time was because Oliphant lived in Market Street, fair distance from the murder scene, and one outside the area that police had focused the hunt for June's killer upon. During this period, his workmates told police that his behaviour and demeanour had at all times been normal to them. Yet Oliphant had been enticing children away for who knows how long at a shilling a time for whatever purposes going through his dark mind with no remorse or concern. He never once expressed a shred of compassion for the children or the relatives of the children involved in his crimes or expressed any regrets about what he'd done. What exactly he did to these children he enticed away has never been revealed but by all accounts only June and George had screamed. Oliphant's response to this was deadly and horrific. Mr. mcnichol went on. None of these other children was hurt in any way, and view of Oliphant's reply, one could only be thankful that none of them had screamed. After consulting psychiatric reports, Sheriff Hamilton sent Oliphant to the High Court in Aberdeen for sentencing on the 11th of February. He was there with the same impassive expression eight days later when advocate deputy James Law told presiding judge Lord Strachan that the charges relating to June and George were originally ones of murder, but had been reduced to those of culpable homicide because of Oliphant's diminished responsibility. Oliphant had admitted lewd and perverse practices towards other children, and during the hearing it was said that he always gave a shilling to youngsters to buy sweets before committing any offences against them he'd been trapped by the shilling that he'd given to one of these little June Cruikshank. That shilling ended up as a private exhibit in the Aberdeen City Police Headquarters' very own Black Museum. Uh, Places that I'm sure we'd all kind of like to visit, wouldn't we? If you're a true crime fan, you'd want to go and have a nosy round somewhere like that. I'd love to go to the one in Scotland Yard, I really would. Oliphant shut his eyes for several minutes as the medical reports were read out to the court, listening as psychiatrist Dr James Henderson told how Oliphant, who was born near the Highland town of Wick in 1923, was the eldest of eight children and didn't know his natural father. His mother had moved the family to Caithness and had remarried when Oliphant was very young and his stepfather had soon forced the boy into a perverse sexual relationship, especially enjoying such brutality as tying the young boy up and gagging him, and then beating him viciously with a stick for sexual gratification. The young Oliphant had run away from such a delightful sounding home, unsurprisingly, and had ended up in an approved school in Aberdeen. He'd subsequently returned to the Caithness area and found work on a farm, where one of his duties was to slaughter pigs by cutting their throats. He also worked as a horseman on the farm, and so would habitually carry a sharp knife with him at all times. In 1942, aged 19, Oliphant was certified as being of low intelligence, indeed mentally defective, but had managed to support himself through farm work, which he spent a considerable number of years doing. There's no record of any treatment that he may have had or any period of incarceration or hospitalisation Oliphant may have had following this diagnosis though. Following his years spent working on farms Oliphant had moved on to working with the Aberdeen Corporation Sewage an appointment that he reached the position of charge hand at and that he retained up until his arrest for murder. Despite the horrific crimes and perversions that he admitted to It appeared that Oliphant was indeed capable of normal relationships he had a long romance with a waitress that he'd met at a city dance hall early in the 1950s but three years into their courtship she died of heart disease leaving Oliphant heartbroken. With Oliphant himself now convinced that he was cursed and seeing nothing but a bleak future and outlook for himself he began trying to force others to suffer as he himself had suffered many years before as a young child. Oliphant was suffering from what psychiatrists told the court was infant sexual sadism, a form of perversion in which sexual gratification was gained by inflicting cruelty upon others. He told Dr. Henderson, I never had any friends. The only time I ever had any friends was when I was in a pub and had money. I was often out at night wandering on my own. Most evenings I went to the plot, then went upstairs to my room and read the papers. There is a queer feeling that happens to me at times. It's bothered me since I was young, a cold shivery feeling, especially when I see blood. Oliphant had that cold shivery feeling at least twice in the early 1960s and perhaps other times, who knows, perhaps he'd killed before and who knows how many more times he would have had he not been caught when he was. It doesn't bear thinking about that really, does it? Much was made in court of Oliphant not being questioned as a suspect in the June Cruikshank murder investigation because of his Market Street address being outside the Target area and it was the belief of Dr Andrew Wiley, physician superintendent of Cornhill Hospital who had examined Oliphant pre-sentencing, that had he been questioned at the time, he would more than likely have broken down and confessed. He'd offered little denial when he was questioned and had this been almost three years earlier, george forbes may still today have been alive there's no report of oliphant having any prior criminal record so we don't know how long he was offending for but if it was steeped in his childhood experiences then it could have been over a period of many years james law then asked the doctor if he were to be set at large might he as a result of his mental disorder commit offenses again to which Dr Wiley replied that yes, he was of the opinion that he would be liable to commit similar offences. Lord Strachan, given his verdict, ruled that Oliphant would be sent to the state hospital at Carstairs without limit of time, effectively meaning a life sentence there. The only person who could free Oliphant was the Scottish secretary, an action which could only happen if it was felt there were good grounds for his release, and due to the horror of his actions, that was considered hardly likely under the circumstances. The house where Oliphant lodged at, the loft of a top floor flat above a bank at the bottom of Market Street, occupied by a couple and their schoolboy son, became a ghoulish kind of mecca for weirdos following his incarceration and his address being published. Now you do always get the ghouls in these places, I mean, I can't talk. Over the years I've been to several places of note, such as Cromwell Street, Melrose Avenue, and the places that I've featured in several episodes of the podcast to name but a few, because I always post videos up and it helps write the episodes. But but Oliphant's landlady reportedly had to shoo away several people, including at least one smartly dressed business type person, who offered a substantial amount of money to be allowed to sleep in the iron cot in the loft where Oliphant had slept. His request was, uh, shall we say, declined. It takes all sorts of oddballs, doesn't it? I wouldn't have gone that far, of course, like I was always just happy with a bit of a nosy gawp. Shortly after Oliphant was sent to Carstairs, the parents of June and George met each other for the first time, with David and Anne Cruikshank visiting the Forbes at their home in Justice Street, a poignant occasion in which they shared their mutual grief and sense of justice being done over that great British of things, a pot of tea. It couldn't bring either child back or erase the memory of their horrific deaths, For each family could take small solace in the fact that the monster who'd torn their lives apart was now somewhere that he could never again hurt another child. Oliphant himself was to spend the next 24 years as a patient at Carstairs a proper hopeless case. The actions that had begun a deep rot within him during childhood were too far gone to be able to successfully treat and he remained a morose brooding figure, finding it impossible to make friends and staff at Carstairs never being sure if he was responding to any treatment or not. He couldn't be moved to a lower security hospital because of the fear that he may escape and kill again and so remained as a Carstairs patient until his death from natural causes in february 1988 he was 65 years old the name of james oliphant is due to the passage of time largely forgotten now amongst the annals of british crime indeed his may be a case that you're unfamiliar with it wasn't a case that i knew of and there wasn't too much to be able to research about it by what's been told during the episode Many of the locations involved in the tale have now changed beyond any recognition or have completely disappeared. The sinister cul-de-sac where June Cruikshank met her death and the shop that she visited, Kincaid's, are all long gone, as is the allotment where the tragic remains of little George Forbes were found, and the tenement block where he and his family lived. All were removed due to road widening and improvements, and eventually were redeveloped into newer housing estates and retail areas. Although some of the places mentioned here do still remain, they will have changed many times over the years since each crime, and today be unrecognisable, bearing little testimony to the horrors and events that they once bore witness to. And that tale, folks, brings the Carstairs trilogy of this season of the show to a close. Although it does to this day contain people who've committed some of the most awful crimes imaginable, The state hospital today focuses on rehabilitation not just containment and promotes the aim of rehabilitating its patients to the level that they are safe for an appropriate lower level of security. It does a lot of positive work and over the course of the trilogy I hope that the emphasis has been on the tales of the individuals and their crimes rather than dismissing the premises as a simply fearsome dumping ground for the worst of the worst. There are so many tales from the past and present patients of the establishment that I could have included here, and rest assured, as I said at the start of the episode, Carstairs is a place that we shall visit again on the show at some point. I just chose a couple of cases of note at random for this episode, and I hope that they stand alone as interesting tales, as much as the previous couple of episodes in the trilogy, because the Scottish chain of ten is a bit of a tale to try and follow really, isn't it? As I said I was unfamiliar with both crimes and both of them are horrific awful offences indeed aren't they? How a mental illness can get a grip of somebody to lead them to commit such atrocities is truly terrible stuff. I to a certain extent have a degree of sympathy for Jean Waddell. I mean that's a lifelong degree of illness for her and perhaps had she been treated differently with an alternate course of treatment during her earlier hospitalisations And she may not have committed the sheer horror that she did. And there's no way you can dress that up because that is sheer horror. Throwing kids out of a window like that, isn't it? No matter what drives a person to do that. Oliphant, however, I'm afraid I just cannot have mustered any sympathy whatsoever for. Its actions were just horrendous and even any diagnosis of diminished responsibility, nor any tales of a horrific childhood that his actions may stem from, They can't overcome the gravity of his depraved crimes. Two young children having their throats slashed. After being procured for whatever reason I dread to think, I'm amazed that he didn't face the hangman for his crimes. Mad or bad, what do you think? I hope to hear what you guys think in the episode thread that's up now in the show's Facebook group. Preaching to the converted ear, I'm sure, because you all know by now where it can be found. Or you can get in touch by reaching out through the show's social media. I'm never far away, and I'll always respond to anyone who gets in touch. There are also now 13 full-length exclusive bonus episodes, amongst other offers, available if you wish to Patreon support the show. There are reasonable tiers available, should you be interested, and they can be found either by searching out the show on the Patreon site, or by using the handy little link that's always with the contact details for the show in the episode notes. Before you head off, please remember to check out the trailers for the two podcasts that I've got coming up after the end credits. And I'm off now to crack on with the next episode, which is the second collaboration between the True Crime Enthusiast podcast and the Outlines podcast, which I'm thoroughly looking forward to doing. And I hope that you guys are also to see what me and Jess have put our heads together about. That'll be here next time, so until then, this is Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you folks all good and safe times, and I shall catch you very soon. Thanks very much for joining me guys, take care, and goodbye for now. I'm Chelsea and I love true crime
1: and I'm David and I love horror movies and we co-host Based on a True Crime, a podcast where we discuss the real cases that inspired some of the most gruesome crimes and criminals to grace the big and small screens.
0: You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play if you're interested in hearing the true stories behind some really great movies including In Cold Blood, The Town That Dreaded Sundown, and Murder by Numbers.
1: So grab some popcorn, with extra fake butter topping, of course, and join us as we explore just how much of the movies that kept you awake at night are real. Hello, everyone.